Didn't they do a good job? Um, I love Steps of Faith. I love what they do. Uh, I love that my daughter is a part of it because they're worshiping God. And, and so it was Jana, Hannah, Maddie, and Kay. Sounds like a country and western group, doesn't it? Um, but uh, thank you, ladies. When, whenever they come here, they, some of them don't get to go to their own because they're here worshiping with us. And so that's a big deal that they came. I appreciate um, them sharing in our worship service today. So thank you, Jennifer, and, and all of the gr- folks from Steps of Faith. We appreciate them. <clears throat> and if you want to come see them, do the Nutcracker. That's coming up in December. A uh, couple of things that I need to share with you, and then we're going to jump into the, the service to the, today. The theme for our, our small groups tonight, and if you hadn't been coming, you can still come. We are having a great time in our small groups, no matter which one it is. The theme tonight is soup and salad. Um, my, my small group had a soup and salad fellowship about a month ago. Nobody brought salad. Um, I, I, I still have not figured that out. So think of Olive Garden and bring something um, like that, and we'll share with that afterwards. The landing will not meet Tuesday night because it is Halloween. Um, Next Sunday, we have a noon um, lunch, but we also have our ministry meetings, military ministry and the women's ministry, men's ministry, any type of the ministries. If you are involved in that or if you want to be involved in that, on staying with us, we're going to have um, spaghetti. Janie's going to make some spaghetti. And if you are uh, anywhere attached to Haiti, if you've been to Haiti, if you're thinking about going to Haiti, if you know where Haiti is, make some brownies so that we'll have some dessert for next week. And we will have to go play to just let us know that you need one and we'll have those ready when you walk out. If you can't stay, we'll get you a to-go plate at seven bucks. All of that goes to send people to Haiti next year. And then on November 18th, um, we will have a, a breakfast and a work day. Our big Christmas celebration this year is coming up on December 17th. That's a Sunday night. We are not doing the uh, gingerbread house decorating contest. There will be a contest. I'll be telling you more about that. And it, it's going to be just as good, I think. Um, and we're going to have fun with that. We'll have a ride, a bonfire and all on the 17th, um, but we got to get ready for it in November. So if you can be here on Saturday, the 18th of November, help us out. We got to clear out around the pond because our hayride goes around there and our Christmas and all of that stuff, all our lights are going to be down there. All right, we're in this new series uh, called In the Meantime, and I've been reading from this book. I read this book 20 years ago, but I, God brought it to my mind and I'm reading it, and it's called Disappointment with God. It's by Philip Yan. And I want to share with you uh, some of the research he did. He's researched um, several people, dozens of people, disappointment with God. He found a modern day Job, one he called a modern day Job. And here's um, what he had to say. Uh, Oops, wrong page. What he said, um, Douglas is his name. And he said that um, Douglas' troubles began years ago when his wife discovered a lump in her breast. Surgeons removed that breast, but two years later, the cancer had spread to her lungs. Douglas took over many household and parental duties as his wife battled the debilitating effects of chemotherapy. Sometimes she couldn't hold down any food. She lost her hair, and always she felt tired and vulnerable to fear and depression. One night, they're driving. Douglas, his wife, and his 12-year-old daughter in the car. A drunk driver comes across, hits them head on. His wife, who was sick, she wasn't hurt that badly. His daughter got a broken arm and, and some facial lacerations from the glass. Douglas received a brain injury. He was the worst uh, hurt and he was the one that took care of the family. After the accident, Douglas never knew when a headache might strike. He could not work a full day and sometimes he would become disoriented and forgetful. Worse, the accident permanently affected his vision. One eye wandered at will, refusing to focus. He developed double vision and could hardly walk down a flight of stairs without assistance. Douglas learned to cope with all those disabilities, but one, 
He could not read more than a page or two at a time. In all his life, he had loved books. Now he was restricted to the limited selections and the sluggish pace of books uh, on tape, recorded books. Um, He says, when I interviewed him, I'd already interviewed dozens of people. By the time I interviewed Doug, um, a dozen people had already given a full range of disappointments with God. If anyone had a right to be angry with God, Douglas did. Just that week, his wife got the news that the, the spot on her lungs had returned. The cancer had returned. Um, He says, our meal was being served. As our meal was being served, we caught up on the details of our lives. Douglas ate with great concentration and care. Thick glasses corrected some of his vision problems. But listen to this. He had to work hard at focusing just to guide his fork from his plate to his mouth. So Yancey says, I've been interviewing people for my book, Disappointment with God. Could you tell me about your own disappointment? What have you learned that might be able to help someone else going through a difficult time? Douglas was silent for what seemed like a long time. He stroked his peppery gray beard and and gazed off beyond my right shoulder. I fleetingly wondered if he was having a a mental gap at that moment. Finally, he said, to tell you the truth, Philip, I don't feel any disappointment with God. The reason is this. I learned first through my wife's illness and then especially through the accident not to confuse God with life. I'm not a stoic. I'm as upset about what happened to me as anyone could be. I feel free to curse the unfairness of life and to vent all my grief and anger. But I believe God feels the same way about that accident, grieved and angry. I don't blame him for what happened. Douglas continued, I've learned to see beyond the physical reality in this world to the spiritual reality. We tend to think life should be fair because God is fair, but God is not life. And if I confuse God with the physical reality of life by expecting constant good health, for example, then I set myself up for crashing disappointment. God's existence, even his love for me, does not depend on my good health. Frankly, I've had more time and opportunity to work on my relationship with God through my impairment than before. If we develop a relationship with God apart from our life circumstances, then we may be able to hang on when the physical reality breaks down. We can learn to trust God despite all the unfairness of life. After all, isn't that what the book of Job is about? And he said, so then we decided to look at the Bible together. For the next hour, we worked through the Bible together, testing our ideas. In the Sinai wilderness, God, God's guarantees of physical success, health and prosperity and military victory did nothing to help the Israelites' spiritual performance. And most heroes of the Old Testament, Abraham, Joseph, David, David, Elijah, Jeremiah, Daniel, went through trials much like Job's. For each of them, at times, at times, the physical reality surely seemed to present the fact that God was the enemy. But each managed to hold on to a trust in him despite the hardships. In doing so, their faith moved from a contract faith, I'll trust God if he treats me well, to a relationship that could transcend hardship. Then Douglas says to to Philip, I challenge you to go home and read again the story of Jesus. Was life fair for him? For me, the cross demolished all for all time the basic assumption that life will be fair. And he said, Douglas gave me a pattern. Studied Job in the Old Testament, end with Jesus. He said, that's a pattern we need to follow today. Look at the Old Testament, but always look to Jesus. So he went home and he began reading. And he began asking, how did Jesus respond to the question, is life unfair? Here's what he found out. Nowhere did I find him, Jesus, denying unfairness. When Jesus encountered a sick person, he never delivered a lecture about accepting your lot in life. He healed whoever approached him, and his scathing words about the rich and the powerful of his day show how, what he clearly thought about social inequities. The Son of God reacted to life's unfairness much like anybody else. When he met a person in pain, he was deeply moved with compassion. When his friend Lazarus died, Jesus wept. When Jesus himself faced suffering three times, he recoiled from it, asking that God please take it away. God responded to the question of unfairness, not with words, but with a visit, with an incarnation. We call it Christmas. 
And Jesus offers flesh and blood proof of how God feels about unfairness. For he took on the stuff of unfairness, the physical reality at its unfairest. He gave a final answer to all the lurking questions about the goodness of God. Now, here's a parenthesis. After saying all this, listen to this. Yancey says, it appeared to me, it occurred to me that as I read the gospels, that if all of us in the body of Christ would spend our lives as Jesus did, ministering to the sick, feeding the hungry, resisting the powers of evil, comforting those who mourn and bringing the good news of love and forgiveness, then perhaps the question, is God unfair, wouldn't be asked with such urgency in our day. You see, when, when we go through things that we think we shouldn't go through, when we're stuck and when we think life is unfair and we don't know what to do, most of us, many of us, get mad at God. Because we're thinking, God, you could do something, but you aren't doing something. You're assuming you aren't doing anything, so I'm going to get mad at you. If you think he can, but he won't, then isn't all your pain and suffering his fault? So we started this series to address these questions. And, and the week one, um, we looked at this. We looked at some lies that we believe when there's nothing we can do. We believe that we'll never be happy ever again. We believe nothing good can come from this. We believe there's no point in continuing this job, this marriage, this life, because no good can come from this. There's no point in continuing. And I'm the only person who has ever felt that way. So in order to address this week one, we said this, God is not absent. He's not apathetic. He's not angry. Never mistake God's silence for God's absence. He's very near and he walks with you through it. He doesn't take you out of it. And we know that God's not absent or apathetic. Don't, don't mistake his silence for that. And we know he's not angry because he poured out his anger, his wrath on his son, so that you and I might become the righteousness of God through Christ. So don't think that God's angry at you. He poured out his anger on sin. Week two, we said this. Christians, you have an option. You have a lot of bad options, but there's one good option to pain and suffering. You can receive your pain and adversity as a gift with a purpose and a promise. The purpose has not been revealed yet and may not be revealed yet in this lifetime, but the promise has, my grace is enough. And, and so we start off, we looked at, the, at, at John the Baptist. John the Baptist was beheaded. Not a good situation. We looked at Jesus Christ. We looked at Paul. And we found out that Paul had all kinds of stuff happen in his life. Bad stuff. And I'm going to read a list in just a minute. But we figured out that, that Paul um, did not have a problem believing in a good God in bad circumstances. In fact, every person in the New Testament went through pain and suffering. They thought it was normal. It's only Americans who have this issue with how can God be good if there's pain and suffering. It's only us in the Western world. You go to Haiti. They don't have a problem with that. They still believe God's good no matter what they go through. Paul went through all kinds of suffering, but last week we discovered that there was a special case. He called it a gift, and it had a, had a positive connotation. It's a Christmas gift. Paul, what kind of Christmas gift did you get? It was a, it, he called it a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to torment me. Woo! How many of you want that gift for Christmas this year? No. And Paul pleaded with God three times. He pleaded with God, would you please take it away? Because we... we that his gift, this Christmas gift, it was painful, it was humiliating, it was debilitating, and it was permanent. So Paul falls on his face and he said, God, take it back. I don't like this Christmas gift. God said, no, my grace is enough. Actually, God didn't even say no. He implied it. He just said, my grace is enough. And Paul shrugs his shoulders and goes, just thought I'd ask. Because for Paul, there was no discrepancy between a good God and pain and suffering. It was normal. 
for Christians in the New Testament. It's not normal for us. So Paul said this is normal. You want to know what else Paul said? Somebody please say yes. Thank you. Paul said that in the worst adversity, check this out, you can find contentment. In fact, you're not going to find contentment like he's talking about until you go through the worst possible adversity. Let's define it so you understand. Contentment means to be free from care because of satisfaction. I am satisfied with what I already have, with what's already one's own to be satisfied with what's already one's own. The Hebrew term just means to be pleased. The actual word from Hebrew means to be pleased. Contentment means I'm pleased with what I have. I don't care what you have. I don't care what I had in the past. I don't care what I have in the future. I am pleased. I am satisfied with what I have right now. This is a big deal because when we first meet Paul, he's arresting Christians. Then he meets Jesus and he starts traveling around the known world, starting churches all over the place. And about 10 years into his campaign to win the world to Christ, ironically, Paul is arrested for talking about Christ. Years earlier, Paul was arresting Christians. Now he's arrested because he's talking about Christ. He won't shut up about Jesus being the only way. So he's taken to Rome. He's put in under house arrest to await an appointment with Nero, the Caesar. Caesar, uh, This Nero, Caesar Nero, may have been the greatest, biggest Christian hater in history. Study a little bit about Nero. He was crazy. He used to light his garden parties with Christians on a cross. He would ignite them as lamps, human lamps. This is the guy that Paul's awaiting his trial before. From the outside, looking in, it sure seems like Rome won and and Jesus lost. Jesus is dead and gone. And and in in Rome, you were required to say, Caesar is Lord. And, And it's kind of funny to me because it didn't matter which Caesar. Any Caesar is Lord. They thought he was a God. Actually, Caesar thought he was God, made everybody else call him God. Caesar is Lord. Nero is large and in charge. And the Jesus is Lord guy is in prison. And so Paul looks at his life and he said, there's nothing I can do about my situation. So I'm going to write some letters. He didn't know it, but those letters become part of the best-selling book of all time. There's four letters that we call the prison letters. Go ahead and put that up there, Bobby. Go ahead. The next, my dad, my dad, epistle, that's, the, that's, that's, that's a seminary word for letters, so I'm going to call it letters. My dad thought it was so funny that there were apostles who wrote epistles, and, and I can't even tell you what all my dad said about that. It's some of it's not even appropriate. Um, <laughs> But he thought it was so funny. We're going to call it letters. The the new life term is letters. So Paul wrote these letters when he was in prison. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Four of the letters in the New Testament were written when Paul was in an in-the-meantime moment. He doesn't know what this is going to do. He doesn't know the impact. But in the course of history, he's changing history. He's changing the world. And what he wrote became more important than anything in the Roman Empire much more long-lasting. It's kind of like Paul's letters are the Energizer Bunny. They just keep marching through the centuries and changing the world. That's pretty amazing. Paul wrote all of these letters in an in-the-meantime moment. And let me just give you a couple of things. This isn't going to be on the screen, but I want you to understand what he wrote in these letters. In Ephesians chapter 2, he said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. By grace, you've been saved through faith. It is not of yourself so that no one can boast. That's in Ephesians. Ephesians 5, he says this, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Ladies, aren't you glad Paul had a little bit of time on his hands in prison to write that one? Because when your guy's getting out of line, just I'll smack him. You don't smack him with the word of God. I'll, I'll hit him upside the head with the word of God. In Philippians, He says, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. 
He's saying, I'm in prison. It would be great to go to heaven because I win. I, I never have any pain and suffering anymore, but I'm going to stay here. As long as God leaves me here, I'm going to lead you to maturity in Christ. It's good if I stay. It's good if I go. How can a guy like that lose? Kill me? All right. Leave me here? All right. You cannot defeat a man like that. Philippians 2, you know this. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He wrote some really good stuff in the meantime moments. He had no idea what hung in the balance when his decision to remain faithful was extremely difficult. So my advice to you, if you're going through an in the meantime moment, number one step is remain faithful because you don't know who's watching, but somebody's watching. And see, what are the odds that some letters written by a sickly Christian, a sickly Christian in the first century waiting trial before Nero, what are the odds that it would change the course of history? What are the odds that those letters will even make it out of the first century? How many of you have read letters written by Nero? You know, the only time I study Rome is when I'm studying what's in the scriptures. That's the only time I study this stuff. They're attached. They're a byproduct of the word of God, which lasts forever. Paul did not know what hung in the balance, but I'm not exaggerating when, I, exaggerating when I say you and I hung in the balance because what he wrote 2,000 years ago had some role in your coming to Christ. See, Paul has had such an impact on history because of adversity and because of his response to adversity. You want to make a difference? <laughs> Go through adversity and, and respond right. You have no idea who's watching you and somebody's watching you. When everything around you screams, be unfaithful, be faithless, you stay faithful because someone is watching and you may change the course of history. I was thinking about this. My great uncle Walt took my mama when she was a little girl to church. My mom started serving in a church when she was 14 years old, played the piano or the organ in church for about 73 years and that impacted my decision to follow Christ and to preach. You do not know who's watching, but somebody is watching. When everybody else says it's not worth it, give up, you need to remind yourself you will never know the impact of your life that it could have had unless you remain faithful. You will not know the impact your life could have had unless you remain faithful. Let me give you a promise. If you become faithless, I guarantee you, you will not lead someone to Christ. In fact, you may lead them to hell. Paul's under house arrest. He won't shut up about Jesus being the only way to God. He assumes his life is over because Nero is the Christian hater. Nero is the Christian killer. In the meantime, he writes this letter to, to the church at Philippi, and we're going to pick it up in Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that you at, at last you renewed your concern for me. I'm sorry, I, I'll tell you about this. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. He's going, it's about time. When my girls say that something takes too long, they say 25-8 instead of 20... Uh, no, I'm sorry. They say five ever. Here we go. Five ever. Instead of four ever, they say, that took five ever. And I'm like, dramatic much. It's funny. So they'll come in. Taco Bell, the, the drive through That took five ever. It did. Yeah, you were gone 12 minutes. <laughs> if, if, if something is bothering them, you know, and it's been going on a while, it's been going on 25-8 instead of 24-7 because, I mean, you know... Well, I think it's funny because Paul's going, 
It's been five ever since I've heard from you guys. Now, you got to understand, they, they, they didn't have smartphones, so nobody Snapchatted his arrest. I'm grateful to God none of you suckers were around when I was arrested and taken to jail before going to Haiti for, for accidentally taking my gun. Because you would have put this on Facebook, you would have put it on Snapchat. Look at our preacher. You can't be any worse than him. Come to our church. Mm-hmm. I know you, right? Thank you, Jesus, that nobody has... In fact, they didn't even handcuff me in front of my family. I was grateful to God for that. They take me outside, and one of my best friends who is a pastor and his daughter was going with us to Haiti that year, he's the only one that saw me get handcuffed and put into the back of the car. And it's the strangest thing, being handcuffed and riding to jail. Ten minutes earlier, I was going to Haiti. And, and it's weird because the police, they were awesome. I'm going to tell you, the DFW police were awesome. And I was the most compliant prisoner ever. And so I, I'm, I'm riding back there. It's very uncomfortable. And he goes, hey, tell me about your mission trip. Well, I was going to Haiti. He goes, oh, my daughter did this. And we're just talking. And it's weird. You're driving places that are restricted. You know, I'm getting to see stuff I wouldn't see any other way. And, and he says, well, here's what you're going to do. You're going to make this call. You're going to catch up with your family. You're going to go. They were the coolest ever. And, and you know, I'm, I'm in jail for five hours that day. And, and, uh, and it seemed like five ever, um, being five hours in jail. Now, Paul is saying, it's been five ever, you haven't talked to me, but they, it took a long time for the Philippians to understand what happened. As soon as they understood, they got together a care package and they sent him a care package. It took five ever to get there. And we don't know what was in the care package. I'm guessing it was, it was a thumb drive, it was an iPad, it was some Beats by Dre. Um, and, and I'm just saying, none of y'all brought that to me because I would have liked that when I was in jail. You, five ever, you didn't even... I'm not bitter. Y'all didn't know. Y'all didn't even know I was in jail. I mean, praise God, I got out and I made it to Haiti. By the way, it's odd years that I have trouble getting to Haiti. So it was, it was 15 that I didn't make it to Haiti because, well, I, I, I was delayed. I got, and it was last year I lost my passport. And, but I'm telling you, I'm telling you, if God wants you to go to Haiti, he can get you to Haiti. Lost my passport and in five hours, I was back to the airport with a new passport quicker than Ryan Pence got me out of jail two years ago. (laughs) Paul says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. He says, I wasn't stir crazy. And by the way, by this point, he's been in jail almost four years. He was two years in another place, two years in Rome. He said, I wasn't stir crazy. And you're going, well, that's good. He said, I didn't have anxiety disorder. Yay. Yay. And then think about this. Last week, Paul said, you got a Christmas gift that was a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment you. That's weird, Paul. What kind of weirdness are you going to tell us today about this? He's about to tell you something weird. He says, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content. Oh, my goodness. By the way, if you say, oh, my God, to God, that's not using his name in vain. Oh, my God, this is big. I'm not, I'm not using, I'm saying, God, this is big. Thank you for sharing this with us. He said, I've learned to be satisfied with what I already have. I've learned to be pleased with what I have. It doesn't matter what you have. He's learned to be content. It's not natural. It's supernatural. In fact, it, it's a process and it's, it, it's something that's kind of like graduate school. You have to go to in the Christian life to learn this. He says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need for I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. Now, if if it's possible, if it's possible to be okay on the inside when things aren't okay on the outside, does anybody want to know that? 
I do. Sign me up. At least there's a few more of y'all. There were like two and a half people. I'm not sure if one of the kids meant to say that, but he signed up for it in the first service. Um, If it's possible, sign me up. I want to know that because I've had trouble in my life. I want to learn to be content. And, and I want to, uh, <laughs> there's a couple of big words. I'm going to give you a couple of seminary words today. I'm going to impress you with my, my seminary knowledge. First of all, salvation, you know that one. That's when you ask Jesus to be the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life. He adopts you into his family and you are saved. That's salvation. There's another word called sanctification. How many of you heard that word? I mean, I thought the early service, a lot of them would have heard it. Mm-mm. There's more of y'all that heard it than the first service, but sanctification is a good seminary word. And what it means basically is to grow up in Christ, to be matured in Christ. Sanctification, use that word today at lunch and don't tell anybody I taught you that word. And then somebody else go, Ooh, good word. That's what we do. If somebody uses the word they hadn't used before, we go good word. If they use it right. If not, we go, I don't think that means what you think it means. All right, so sanctification is the process of growing up. And and Paul is saying, you're not going to learn to be content until you go through the process of sanctification. Part of the process of sanctification, growing up in Christ, is going through adversity and learning how to deal with it. Verse 12a, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. And then this is shocking. And I'll tell you why. I have learned the secret of being content. Paul says there's a secret. I've learned it. I know what it is. He said, I know what it is to have enough. I, have, I know what it is to have not enough. The amount that Paul had had nothing to do with his contentment. And, and this is a big word. I gave you sanctification. I'm not even going to tell you the, the Greek word, but, but I love Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek because those are, the, those are the Old Testament, Hebrew, Aramaic. Those were the original languages. Greek is the original language of the New Testament. All of that language, and I think this is why God did it. All of those languages have a word picture behind every word. There's a Greek word, one Greek word that we have translated, learned the secret. And I'm not making this up. It was not a seminary word. It actually came from secular society, from from people far from God, but Paul used this word on purpose and it has the idea of being initiated into a secret society. It's more than a handshake. It's more than a password. If you, if you've been to, to college and you know about fraternities and sororities, I don't know about the sorority thing, but I know, I know initiation ceremonies that guys went through to get into fraternities at college. And so I, I refused. I said, nobody's going to tell me that I'm not doing that for any human being ever. In fact, we, we were so opposed to fraternities. We made our own fraternity. It was a joke. It was called tall Lambda Gamma. We had shirts made with the tall Lambda Gamma here. We used to show up at Greek things on campus just to mess with them. And they'd go, Tall Lambda Gamma, that's awesome. You know, and people that would never speak to us, girls that would never speak to us because we weren't in fraternities would go, Tall Lambda Gamma, what's that? And we'd go, the lonely guys. That's what it stood for. We, we made up our own deal. And we used to, in our, we had a, two of the guys had a house and we would have dances and stuff. Oh, they would clear out all the furniture and we'd have dances. And we would invite girls that would never show up before. We'd say, hey, Tall Lambda Gamma's having a dance. You want to come? Tall Lambda Gamma, we'll come. And anyway, and it was just hilarious. So in our process of doing that, <laughs> I didn't do it. I refused. But my roommate, whose name was Doug, he made this initiation into Tall Lambda Gamma where you had to stand on a chair in the middle of a room and tell people how you'd been dumped by a girl, hence the name, the lonely guys. All right, I digress. Um, Paul is saying that there's an initiation, there's a secret to being content. And here it is. He said, I have been initiated into the cult of contentment. I'm using cult in the best way possible today. He's saying under Jesus Christ as a process of sanctification, 
I have been initiated into the cult of contentment before God. This is remarkable because Paul, before he met Christ, he was not content. He was the highest educated Jew of his time by the most respected Jewish rabbi, Gamaliel. He had, he had influence. People loved him. Jews did. And he hated Christians. And he ran around trying to, to kill them all. After Christ, he tries to win them all. Not only that, Paul went through more than just about any biblical character I know of except Job. Let me list, read this with me, um, the list of things he went through. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I've spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. Now let me just stop there and say, you do not want to get into, oh yeah, you think that's bad? Listen to what happened to me with Paul. Just saying. Now, I want you to see how many dangers he mentions. The word danger. I've got it in yellow for you. I've been danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. How many dangers? Danger to the eighth power. I have known hunger. Oh, wait, I skipped. I've labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. I feel it when you guys hurt, when you guys turn your back on God, when you guys sin, I feel it from this little church. I can't imagine Paul feeling it from all the churches he started. That's remarkable to me. He says, who is weak among the Christians that I don't feel it? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? And all of that, all of that, is on a good day. On a bad day, Paul is arrested and taken to Rome to appear before Nero, the Christian hater. That's who's talking about contentment. Do you understand how remarkable this is? And let me just say, Paul seems to be the only person talking about contentment. I'm convinced it is a secret society because so few Christians demonstrate it. This next verse is one of the most famous verses in the Bible. And it is perhaps the most misapplied verse in history. It's easy to memorize. You've you've heard it. Some of you know it. You've seen it on bumper stickers. You've seen it on posters. You've seen it on t-shirts. And and it it is misapplied. Because it's easy to remember. People have pulled it out of context and said, this applies to me. The context for the verse is, this is Paul's summary of how you live with contentment in the middle of difficult or life-threatening circumstances. The context, Paul is saying, here is how you are initiated into the cult of contentment during difficult or life-threatening circumstances. Now let's read it. I can do all this. Let's just stop right there. I can do all this. Now you may memorize that I can do all things, but I like this translation because I can do all this. What? I can be stoned. I can be beaten. I can be in danger. I can be shipwrecked. I can be lonely, tired, hungry. I can be in danger to the eighth power. That's the context. I can do all of this through Christ, through him. Later translations put Christ so that you wouldn't miss it, but it's capital H. It's Christ through him who one, one pastor I was listening to said, the only correction I would say is, hey, Paul, why didn't you put, gives me his strength. That's big because Paul's not talking about superhuman strength. 
right? That's your next slide there. Paul's not talking about superhuman strength. We have Wonder Woman, we got Thor, we got Captain America, we got that Black Widow lady. I don't know what her superpower is. I, I don't know. Um, we got all of this stuff and people are all into superhu- superhuman strength. He's not talking about that. He's talking about supernatural strength and there's a huge difference. Our world is looking for superheroes. God's looking for humble heroes. The Bible says, humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God that he may lift you up in due time. God opposes proud people, but he gives grace to the humble. God is looking for humble people because when we become humble, he fills us with his Holy Spirit. And there's this mystery that takes place where we can have the mind of Christ. We can have the patience of Christ. We can have the kindness of Christ. We can have the love of Christ. Paul's not talking about superhuman strength. Paul's also not talking about this. The context is, I can do all of this danger toil. I can do all of this through Christ. He's not talking about winning a football game. Paul's sitting in heaven. He's, he's not looking down, but if he were, I think he'd go, really? I'm in prison? And you think it applies to a football game? And they, they mean well, yay. That's not the context of the verse. Paul says it's, it's a lot deeper than that. You're talking about winning a game. I'm not talking about winning a game. I'm talking about surviving something. If you rip this verse out of context, you risk missing being initiated into the cult of contentment. Now, here's how this applies. We're we're almost done. I'm going to read some things, and you're going to read it with me, and we're going to emphasize the words through Christ. In fact, what happens after it on the the next part of the the sentence I have up here, that's really not important if you get the first part right. So I want you to say through Christ, and I want you to emphasize Christ. Through Christ. Through Christ. Christ. Say that. Through Christ. All right, here we go. Through Christ, I can de-stress. Emphasis is not your stress. Emphasis is Christ. Next one. Through Christ, I can go hungry. Say it with me. Through Christ, I can go hungry. Next one. Through Christ, I can be lonely. Last one. Through Christ, I can. Whatever you're facing. So here's what I want you to practice saying this week. Put the first one up there, Bobby. I can't. I want you to say that. I want you to say it. I can't. Say it again. Proud people say he can't. People far from God say he can't. Humble people say I can't. Next, he can. Say that. Next one. He can through me. Say that. If you can't take it anymore, Jesus can. How do I know? He went to the cross. If you're single, he can through you. If you're pregnant, whether you're married or not, he can through you. If you're miserable with this dude, you're miserable without this dude, you don't know what to do, God can through you. If your marriage sucks, he can help you stick it out. If your marriage is over, he can help you get through it. The key word is through. I can't, he can, he can through me. Now, let me read you something real quick. From Yancey. For people who doubt God or are disappointed with God, to such people trapped in the present, disappointed with God, the Bible offers two cures. Remember the past and consider the future. 
And the Psalms and the prophets and the gospels and the epistles, there's that word again. The Bible constantly urges us to look back and remember the great things God has done. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who delivered the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt. He is the God who out of love sent his son to die and who then resurrected him from death. By focusing too myopically on what we want God to do on our behalf, we may miss the significance of what God has already done. Likewise, the Bible points to us to the future. For disappointed people everywhere, the Jews held captive in Babylon, the Christians persecuted by Rome, Rome or Iran or South Africa or Albania, the prophets envision a future state of peace and justice and happiness. They said the prophets proclaim that history will be determined not by the past or the present, but by the future. No matter how we rationalize, God will sometimes in the end disappoint us. Only in the end Listen to this. Only in the end of time, after we have attained God's level of viewing, after every evil has been punished or forgiven, every illness healed, the entire universe restored, only then will fairness reign. Then we will understand what, uh, what role is played by evil and by the fall and by uh, natural law and what, why an unfair event like the death of a child happened. Until then, we will not know and can only trust God who does know. Listen to this. Not until history has run its course will we understand how all things work together for good. Faith means, faith means believing in advance what will only make sense in reverse. So I want you to start praying this. I can't, he can, he can through me. I want you to say, I can do all this, all the mess through Christ who gives me strength. And each night, I want you to begin thinking about this mystery of Christ in you. And I want you to pray, God, teach me the secret. Initiate me into this cult of contentment because I'm not content. Now, I want you to think about what you're most disappointed in right now, right this moment. And I want you to write on the back of your registration card. And when we, in a moment when you leave, you put it back there. I'm going to pray for you this week over whatever that is. What can you do right now in the meantime to be faithful and to cause the kingdom of God to move forward. Now, one last quote, and then we're, we're done. Put it up there, Bobby. Contingent contentment turns us into wounded, warrior, worried people, but Christ-based contentment turns us into joyful people. Death, failure, betrayal, sickness, disappointment, they can't take our joy because they can't take our Jesus. Amen. It is high time American Christians start living like that. If we do, somebody's watching. And like the ripple effect, when you throw a rock in the lake and it ripples and it just, you don't even know where it ends up, Paul had no idea what his letters written in the first century would do. You have no idea who's watching you. Did you bow your heads? Father, turn us into fully devoted followers of Christ. And if that means we got to go through adversity so that we can learn this secret of contentment. Show us, teach us, so that we can be a reflection of you to watching generations. And we ask you to change their destiny. In the name of the risen Savior, we pray. Amen.